Okay, so like Mark was just talking about like how like you know there's that that ritual of like sitting down in a bar after a long ass day's work, you know, ordering a drink, lighting up a smoke, and you know the place just reeked, of course, right? But like you know there is this like whole social ritual around that kind of thing, which is like lost now, you know. Um, because, you know, it's bad for you, you shouldn't do it, so we're trying to eliminate that from our society. We've identified a source of physical risk and have taken an epidemiological approach to eliminating that, because the only important thing is the is the, the physical risk, right? Um, and then, like, there's a plan. Right. And, and, and excluding, and, and excluding and then, of course, purchasing overpriced uh, cocktails, which is not right, a risk, right, which we right, should talk right. about as well. Like, the idea that, like, oh, say, we're, we're stripping away uh, at a ritual, that we believe that is in some way, or we, you know, that that's well, no, someone you made, you somewhere. Made, you made another interesting point too, right? Which was like, you know, you walk by uh, playgrounds these days, and there's way less playground equipment if, if there even is a playground anymore. And you know, that's you know, we know why. That's like the insurance industry uh, being like, oh, like okay, someone could chip their tooth if they fall from that slide or something, right? As well as like, you know, helicopter parent types who are like, you know, very highly overprotective. But it, 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 to me, this seems like to come from like a similar kind of place, right? Where they, there's this kind of like biological, physical risk, which has been identified as unacceptable. And as a result, like um, a, a whole classification of human activity is simply uh, simply removed, no matter you know how deeply rooted it is culturally or and and without any reference to the disruptive effects it will have on human psychology, on society, uh, on, on you know, it's like okay, so there are some biological risks here, but wait, are there are there benefits that society reaps from that that custom or practice or activity? Um, yeah. That you that you overlook by with this sort of exclusive focus on um, on uh, biological risk. So in like Grant, you were talking about like alcohol. Well, it's not really like any safe amount of alcohol. Like you know, uh, and like yeah, I tend to agree with that actually. I mean, I find even like one drink, like I I I can't write. You know, if I have like one drink, like that's it. Like I can't. Okay, I did drunk. I did I did write drunk once, but like for the most part, I kind of shuts things down and. You know, the same you're like time. the anti. You're like the anti Hemingway. In other yeah, words. exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, like the, the 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 social benefits to drinking, I think, make it worth make it worthwhile to tolerate a certain amount of the biological toxicity yeah, yeah. that comes with it. Well, that's what that's what McGilchrist writes about in one of his appendices in Matter with Things, right? Like, uh, Grant, you might did, Grant. Do you have that book, or have you ever checked it out? Do you have like an ebook copy just, of it or anything? I've just read what you guys have written. Okay. About him. Well, maybe so I, I gotta I, get it. I, I think I, I think I might have. Uh, I might be able to send you that appendix. I think I took pictures of it because it's all on alcohol. He, he just kind of goes on this tangent about how he, he was interested in these, uh, in all the, all the health studies on alcohol, and this is kind of like epidemiological stuff and like high level, like looking at heart disease and, and. Um, you know, kind of cirrhosis like of the liver and, and liver cancer and yeah, yeah. And so, so he's so he he's one of those guys, um, one of those kind of obsessive academic types. When when he's interested in something, he'll read everything on it. And so he's like, I looked at all the literature, and I can't find anything like 
anything consistent that shows that any of this stuff is legit. And he goes into what John was just saying about the social benefit too. He's like, well, and we're ignoring that uh, there's, there's a ritual involved where you like in his, in his culture, because he's uh, he's Scottish and and has lived in like the the UK his whole life. Well, I don't know if his whole, if his whole life, but the whole thing about going to the pub with your friends, it's not necessarily to go get drunk, but it's a social thing. And that um, it's been a while since I've read it, but I think he's kind of making a similar point that by by ignoring that social aspect, that's actually um, has arguably health benefits that those may in fact offset the risks of of th that are commonly commonly talked about by public health authorities and um and right kind there's of like a public health they they like they like reduce humans to like what agamben called like bare life right like you're just this biological uh assemblage of cells in a box and the only relevant inputs are, you know, food, air, water, um, and the, the the social aspect doesn't really come into it. The psychological, the spiritual, like none of it, right? So if you take that example of the pub, like they're you all, can't. It's impossible. They're all they're all well, technocrats at a certain level. Well, actually, and the it's terrifying the terrifying thing of planning. The, ter the, the terrifying thing, actually, I think, is that you probably can measure it in some ways, right? Like I could totally see the technocrats eventually being like, Oh, like, you know, if, uh, our, if our yeast <laughs> humans spend 1.62 hours, uh, every three days in the pub conversing with their fellow <laughs> yeast humans, it improves their productivity by 62% overall. Therefore, you know, yeah, right. no, it's like, this, it's, it's, again, it's the, the, the single factor factorial like graphing of, basically everything and it's and minus and minus the ritual and i think the ritual is really the 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 key angle of attack here right because like if we talk about the ritual i i we started it and i said like well yeah a long day of work i walk into a bar it's it's a bar where you know i'm norm everybody knows my name i know everybody else's name for the most part it's it's the watering hole you go in you light up a smoke you order a drink and then you look around and then you see what who else is there and like and and you're interacting with them in multiple ways. Um, there's a girl, she has a cigarette, you light her cigarette. You know what I right. mean? Uh yeah. there, there, there are a multitude of like smaller rituals contained inside of these larger rituals that lead to that intersect with mating rituals, that intersect with um basically the business of being human for the most part. Like then the busyness of being human is essentially like that we connect. We, we forge and find new connections and we, we, we fuse the familiar to the new and like in, in places like that and experiences like that, which are heightened experiences, because we're talking about, you know, substances that alter our perception in a number of ways, even if it's just booze and cigarettes. There are, yeah, there, there are ways in, in which we, 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 we transcend like what is kind of the mundanity of the world, the 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 ho-hum business of labor, of of just sort of like just grinding through a day in order to secure whatever small, you know, possessions we have. And it's just kind of like so that that the attacks, like in that sense, like do seem like spiritual attacks. You know, it's like, yes, it's it's all grounded in liability and insurance. But at the same time, it's like grinding off of all of those rougher edges of surprise yeah. and uniqueness like in a way gradually 
corrals us into like what John was describing this this base existence like where it's just like okay how can I preserve all of the the current atoms in my body like in in basically the same state for I don't know x number of years or x number of decades and like that's not a human life I, I'd yeah. say that's not even really a goldfish life I yeah. think that you know you said something about rough edges and for me that's that's kind of like the the key point here like this this kind of rawness and and roughness that I think is associated with uh, things like smoking um, especially you know it's, it has something like primal so uh, a, a sort of shared thing and it's you know and back in the days even non-smokers used to have ashtrays at home right when because when they had guests you know it was just uh, the polite thing to do to give them an, an, an ashtray so even they had this kind of like shared experience right i mean people can't imagine that anymore uh but uh and it's like the same story we see everywhere basically like i was thinking about that you know when this whole like gas stove discussion was on right, right. I mean, you would think like i mean like a gas stove i mean who would have something against a gas stove right i mean i think it's it goes beyond this the safety uh, obsession or although there's part of it it's just you know like the for, to those people it's like the worst they can't allow it to that somebody actually has fire in their house you know like it's just just which is such be, you know and it's again this, this, this sort of rawness right this this and for to me like the you know the, the smoking stuff it's just very much associated with, with that you see bands on like wood fires as well fireplaces wood stoves um you know, the necessity to get a permit if you want to have like a bonfire for for example and like that is kind of anti-human in a strong yeah, way it, it goes I mean, so against the spirit right of, than, of the, than, the times um i mean just to have the idea to have a fire in your in your home this is just like a, a middle finger to like this entire like technocratic thing right it's just it's it's really interesting yeah, it's the, it's the, like it's, the it's the evil that... gods that bound Prometheus to some degree, right? Like, right. like if you want right. to get mythic about it, like it's just sort of like the idea of fi fire. You have fire, you say you're burning fires in your house. Like, how dare you? And it says, like, you mean well, the thing that 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 made us thrive, that got us through the ice age, like that thing, the thing and that, like the, that, and that and and there's this old association too between like fire and like ancestor cults. Um, you know, where you would like honor the ancestors by having this like little eternal flame going in the corner of your house, for instance. So that was an old, old Indo-European custom. Uh, and very old associations between the fire and fire and the sacred, uh, higher existence, and so on. Um, Fuck, even birthday candles. I mean, like it's even, it's yes. not. It's the, the yes. Are they yet banned in the U.S.? To... <laughs> not yet. No, but yeah, like I, I can see the, the birth of LED candles where like you know they have sensors equipped with them and the child blows yeah, on I mean, them and the sensors like the, pick up you know, the, the, Christmas the breath tree, and it yeah we used to have like real candles on the Christmas tree and I mean yes. we we'd still do it um but uh it's like it's become a, a rarity now. Heather and well, I had an article or she did about you know the, the light spectrum and uh I guess what's produced by fire and incandescent bulbs and it you know some portion of, of the non-visible light spectrum that penetrates you know basically into our brains um that it seems like our body needs and i, I lack the scientific vocabulary to explain it better but it's uh 
from uh, I guess natural selection is dark inside your head is the name of the article, but she talks about that and like how the LED and fluorescence don't produce that same light. Right. You know, and so it's like it has an effect on our mental states, you know. Well, yeah, and it feels very weird and artificial and things even look strange like under fluorescent lights, you know, it's like you, people just look kind of sickly, you know. Um it's just yeah. Uh it's I, the thing that kind of like seems to unify all of this together to me is like, this is just sort of how I look at it. It's like you sort of have people out there who, you know, they'll get something into their heads, some idea uh, about like X is bad for you because X is dangerous. Right. And they'll start out by saying, Hey everyone, like here's this bad thing about X that we found out because we have studies. Um, and then you know, some people will look at that and they'll be like, oh, I hadn't realized that. I don't want bad thing to happen to me, so I will stop doing X. But then a lot of other people are kind of like, they're kind of like, oh, interesting, good to know, don't care, because there's reasons I like doing X, you know? You know, whether X is like drinking too much on a Friday night or going base jumping or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, and then that first group gets really cross how dare you not listen to us? We told you X is bad thing and you keep doing X. So then that's when the government gets involved and the pressure campaign starts and so on. Because like it's, it's the imperative is that like, you know. Do you think though that they use that, us, like you know? that, are those people really in the driver's seat? Like, are they, it's kind of like you have this maternal desire to eliminate risk and you, you're, I uh, said, John, about uh safety last is it says it yeah, all perfectly yeah. like they they obviously they're a big force behind it but it's like are are they kind of being used or weaponized by someone else it's like hey they're so this maternal in instinct is useful and so let's promote their fears in this area because you compare this with other things that you know i mean the cavalier attitude towards world war three for example with oh, our policy or the yeah. violent crime in the cities you know with these uh, i mean the leftist sort of policies towards that or the open borders things like that where there's obvious risks that people see and you you know and probably majority of people would not want something to be done about and yet it's like just ignored Whereas these you know, other things like oh the damn, risk of guess, a gas fire in your uh, gas damn, fire in your stove actually, is like don't you, we can't have there's actually that. there's actually a really interesting dynamic there isn't there i mean like so yeah. you have like all of these like tiny little like you know like pretty inconsequential risks like you know the risk of a child falling out falling off a, a slide and chipping his tooth for example um uh or you know whatever and like there's this the risk from a virus you know um and the 0.01 percent chance of dying if you're you know healthy um but and so then you have like this, this sort of like this huge pressure to like, you know, eliminate that risk entirely, no matter the costs. But then on the other hand, you have these existential risk phenomena that like, you know, the possibility of nuclear war breaking up between the great powers uh, or, um, you know, tens of millions of illegal immigrants flooding into the U.S. Uh, to get to God knows what in the long run, probably nothing good. Um, and yeah, the same people who are like all tied up with these like tiny risks are exactly the same ones who uh, kind of shrug at the big ones. And then the reverse is also very true in my experience, which is that the people who are like looking at those big existential risks and going, hold on, 
maybe nuclear war isn't a good idea, uh, are also the same ones who kind of like shrug at the small stuff, like the chance of catching a virus. Um, but I think, you know, I think, I think there, some of that a, could be... Ex- Go ahead, Luke. Uh, yeah, no, I, I was just thinking, you know, the, what what might be like an explanation behind it is uh, the, just the drive to control, right? Because uh, um, uh, if you if you imagine you are kind of like a Machiavellian, uh, evil psychopath, the leader kind of type, right? And so what 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 uh, are you gonna do? And um, you want to avoid that uh, people basically bond, right, and get together mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, like having a good time, basically uh, bonding to create like a a complete counterbalance to that. You know, like uh, psychopathic leadership um, that it can penetrate, penetrate right. Th- these kinds of bonds, these human bonds, are like just stronger, and and then like ideologies or whatever. And so, so you want to avoid that, you know. But at the same time, you know, like a threat uh, of nuclear war. I mean, it gets everybody riled up and in panic. Uh, I mean, that's uh, actually a positive, you know, like if you want to control the population. So they might be more willing to play play with that sort of thing. Um, but, you know. Well, to take you know, that. I wonder about that, that though. The, like, uh, with like substances. I was just going to say. You, just, you look at this. Hold on. Oh, this is quick. You look at the substances that are encouraged and discouraged in our society. I would say like, okay, you know, tobacco. It's actually a pretty social substance and it's heavily, heavily discouraged. Uh, alcohol, very social substance and kind of tolerated, but very much like looks down upon, like, you know, you shouldn't drink too much, like, you know, lunch martini is not a thing anymore. Um, and, you know, binge drink on the weekends and get blind drunk, but that's actually not very social either. Uh, you're not going to have good conversations when you can't remember your own name. Uh, and then the drugs that are encouraged are weeds, opioids, you know, all these things that kind of shut you down and like, you know, make you stop talking. Uh, so yeah, social control. Yeah, and I think the other piece to that, and I'm glad that like Luke said it, started it that way, because I think he's correct that like part of this, he's he's described half of the picture accurately. So there are there are these sort of like there obviously are beneficiaries of like this sort of control, gradual um dulling of the edges of the sharp edges of life. Uh, and at the same time, like separating people from each other, making sure that they don't engage in the kind of rituals that would strengthen their bonds. Um, and in some sense, like rehumanize them. But then there's the other aspect of that. The other part of that, I think, is like, I don't know that people are really panicking over abstracts. I remember abstractions like nuclear war, like that when I was a kid growing up, that was still a very real possibility. We were still very much in the Cold War. It was still very much something that people, you know, spread uh, panics about. Um, but at the same time, I remember a distinct feeling of not being panicked. It was an abstraction. It was something, it was mm. this potentiality that didn't seem to have any actuality. Like yeah, there, was there was no, this, there was no I mean, motion. There was this, in- but there was a sense back then, and this is just, I mean, I wasn't really alive for most of the Cold War, but uh, just like, it seems to me that there was this kind of sense of like, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die, right? Like, that's so how I, that's how I kind of saw it. Yeah. But, and but I think know, that like a lot of people... Yeah. But just to get to my second point is that I wonder if it's not panic that people are experiencing, but the opposite of that control matrix, that control mindset. Like what if there there's another one, another mindset that's very widespread, that's supine, a, a subjective mindset, a, a mindset that wants to be, you know, sort of like the bottom in like any kind of social relationship that would prefer to be commanded, that would prefer to be told what to do. Like, in other words, like something 
along the lines of um, a, a, a parental proxy. And like that, that is more widespread than most of us think that there might be like more people that in an, even if they can't express it in language that would prefer to be told what they can and can't do. And like, so even though they would naturally gravitate towards those rituals that we're talking about, because those are good rituals, um, they would naturally gravitate towards them, but then they have a threshold beyond which they're just sort of like, well, if I'm told that I can't do this, I shouldn't do it and I won't do it. And I will castigate others that do it. Like, like yeah. maybe that's, that's a character of, of being that we're, you know, well, leaving that's, out of so, it. That's status that governs that. So like, that's, that's how people, like the type of people that are compliant like that, they're concerned about elevating their status. And that's why they'll shout down people that are doing things that uh, everybody knows is, is stupid and, and unhealthy, like smoking. But I, I don't, I think that the big everybody's kind of been dancing around this because maybe we don't want to sound like postmodernists and like Foucault, but I mean, it, it's all about power. Like you start, we started talking about fire, you know, and we're, we're talking about drugs and the ability, like drugs are, they're powerful, you know, and the monopoly that is given to certain credential class of people to be able to prescribe a huge array of drugs you know look at uh, for cognitive enhancement we have things like adderall which is just amphetamine we got methylphenidate which is derived from cocaine you know so you can't use coca leaves like the peruvians do to tolerate high altitude and long work days um nicotine has similar effects uh, alcohol has it like but when it comes to drugs like everything else there's trade-off and that's why the whole public health paradigm doesn't work is because they're like the only person who knows whether or not it's a favorable trade-off to use a drug in any capacity recreationally for for health wellness um whatever the only person who's qualified to make that decision is an individual because they're the only ones the only one who knows their values and preferences and if you are have the mindset of wanting to help people and wanting to help people be healthier which is you know the the narrative that public health folks operate under you you can't use force and coercion or nudging like cast sunscene style to try and modify these people's behavior and expect that it's going to turn out for the best because you're going to be run, running roughshod over these preferences and missing these subtle nuances that we've covered over like the social aspect, for example, no matter how sophisticated your model gets, there's going to be stuff that you missed. And so if you want to help people, then Say like, hey, why is smoking bad? Like, what are the health adverse consequences? How does that impact you? Same thing with alcohol. You know, what are your values? And hey, if I think that this is bad from my perspective, let me try and persuade you of that. And that way you can actually find out what are the trade-offs. Like, let's be honest. What are the ben are there benefits of nicotine that, you know, or, or smoking? 
you know, they, we want to pretend like there are none. Maybe we should investigate and have an open mind. And, and what are the trade-offs? Because we know there's downsides to it. But what are what are the upsides? Everything is a trade-off. And I think recognizing that helps navigate these waters um, where public health folks, like as a rule, ignore that. Harrison. Well, there's another, uh, there's another mentality um, at work here. So I think that... Um... Like a couple of things have been brought up, like the 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 motive of control. You mentioned power grant, um, but earlier, you know, John had said some said something. I can't remember if it was before we recorded or after about like the techno technocratic government, where you can imagine a technocracy where they where they just where they decide and and figure out that oh this amount of social time drinking is the best for productivity and and uh, worker um, you know morale and so they schedule 1.6 hours of social time and it becomes this like rigid kind of um, you know part of the routine like in Brave New World or something but just to to kind of get behind that attitude well you can take something from basic basic human psychology and then scale it up so me for instance like whenever i see a toilet paper roll with the with the paper coming out from the from the back i'm like what the hell is going on so who is the idiot that put this toilet paper roll on like this right and there's this i've got this obsessive compulsive need to like turn it around and get angry at the person who did this you know without without thought and so i know, i know i've got some obsessive compulsive traits to me and when you when you scale that like to to like the wait wait wait, wait. there's a right there's a correct direction for the toilet paper roll there is <laughs> <laughs> well you see that's 100 like, agree with you on that trade off trade off you wouldn't My want kids do it the other way and i hate it you wouldn't want this might be the most controversial thing we've ever discussed right. actually <laughs> I, but i so I, I but, but, but but wait but the no, toilet paper roll just goes on the shelf <laughs> I don't know how they do things yeah. in Canada. Too, but... <laughs> right. well, actually, this is a great segue. This is a great segue because I wanted to say very quickly about what Grant said regarding like the idea of studying trade-offs and seeing what the benefits are. Here's one of the things I've noticed is that we have abandoned the idea it, almost entirely, like in the academies and the institutions, of the dynamism of being and the individuality of bodies. In other words, that not all things might not be good for all bodies and that and that the trade-offs might be different from body to body. Like, obviously, we have a lot of biological cohesion. There's a lot of homogeneity between human bodies, but like it's not exact. And actually, there, there probably is quite a degree of difference between the way, even the way that various substances that we integrate into our bodies actually affect each individual body. And so I there wonder if at the same time, this attack doesn't have a kind of a spiritual angle where it's, it's denying that individuality, denying that different things affect different people differently. Things, and that, things that, that are deadly hard. poison to one person and should never be, never. and I don't, I don't just mean in terms of like chemical substances. I, can, I, I also mean like in terms of like experiences or practices or customs. Right, right, right. right. Like for one person to be deadly poisonous, for another person to be absolutely essential. So like an example of that would be like um, disciplining children, how you should discipline children, right? Like, you know, you have some kids that if you raise your voice at them, like they will have like a nervous breakdown and like it will scar them for life. And you should probably be very, very gentle with them, right? They don't need strong correction. Other kids, unless you hit them in the back of the head, like won't even notice. Like they need that 
degree of like sort of like physicality and like order and structure and like frankly like social dominance hierarchy in order to you know be able to learn and, grow. and if they're deprived of that they go off the rails completely right and it's kind of a, to a certain degree a boy girl difference right but there's a lot of individual distinction there as well but when you apply that kind of one size fits all mindset if you're talking about yeah, yeah i mean you have people you who see like that you see that with the with the whole college thing. I mean, that's like where that all came. Like the the only way to have this dignified, fulfilling life is you got to go to college. You got to work in a white collar environment. You know, be a knowledge worker. It's like it, there's this contempt that in our in American culture, at least like for decades, it was against blue collar manual labor. Like, you know, just this idea. Like, I mean, because a certain class of people, you know, would look at a factory or you know whatever a work workshop and think oh this is this would be i would be bored doing this work therefore this work is just bad for everybody everybody needs to go to college and you know do the type of work that would be that i feel like would be you know fulfilling for me personally you know so you wind there, up with that. Everybody's irony, right? to college and every it's and, this it's the same yeah. irony with, with the safety question right the big safety questions like securing the border like all these people say like no throw it open it'll be fine Right. And then, and then but then the micromanagement of all these other things that are very personal decisions about the body, individual decisions. Right. Like those are the contradiction there, I think, applies here as well, where it's kind of like there there is no it's all binary for them. It's all on off. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's mm -hmm. all it's all or nothing like it's, it's either the rule right. either applies generally to everyone or it must be in some sort of a, a an off state. For everyone. Except for the and actual that rule of the law, rules. that's something that doesn't apply. It's like if you're on the right team or the left team, I guess right. whatever. The, then hey, you can you can pull you know tear down signs so, and fire alarm, pull fire alarms to stop you know congressional. It's a good eagle thing. And, right? hey, it's, go back you're, to, you're on the right team, so you the, know to go, back to the, the, go for it. The, the sort of like the border question and like you know nuclear arms, uh, nuclear war danger and 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 frankly also this kind of like you know discivilizational assault being launched by the left on like the, the basic underpinnings of civil society um and it's precisely you know people on that side who are also the most concerned with like micromanaging the tiny risks of individual lives i wonder if there isn't a, a sort of deep connection there almost kind of like related to like a thanatos like death instinct where like you know, in this like managerial system where it reacts to risk by with, withdrawing agency from uh, from people, like the experts will tell you what is good to do and you must do with the And if you don't do what the experts say, you get punished by the insurance company, maybe punished by the law. Right. Um, and you find yourself after a while in a situation where you have almost no personal power, right? It's like what you were saying, Grant, like the, I think power comes, like it, it's really important here, right? Because there is this feeling, I mean, I, at least I have it, I think a lot of others do as well, of being like hemmed in all the time, where like you have like all of these fences and regulations and thou shalts and thou shalt nots kind of like govern uh, your existence to an insanely sort of, um granular degree uh and it's rather intolerable right and if you're not consciously aware of this being an issue like if at the surface you're kind of like oh it is good 
that uh, we have all of these rules and regulations to control our behavior uh, and experts to tell us what to do. Um, but like deep down, you still feel deeply dissatisfied with this life because it's not really a life worth living, right? It's, it's very difficult to really have a genuinely good time, to relax, to feel like the, the, the full extent of your talents and abilities, to, to exercise any sort of agency. Um, and then you start secretly wanting to tear it all down, to make it all go away. So then you're like, oh, like we need communism, we need to have a revolution. Or, you know, you look at something like nuclear war and you, and you, you sort of think like, well, you know, what it's going to be so bad, really? Like it couldn't be worse than this. But, you like, know, like the, the, the nuclear war thing, I think it's actually a good, um, it's a good example because we're talking before about like, you know, like the, these big fears, uh, like nuclear war, for example, like these big problems that dwarf like all the, uh, like uh, how how high should a rail uh, on a balcony be so that no children fall off, kind of bullshit. Right. Um, right. And uh, the thing is, um, in 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 Germany and in Europe in general, I mean, during the Cold War, this was like a major scare, right? I mean, this was like really freaking people out, and was like pushed really hard. Uh, so, for instance, um, we had to read in school, like every every child had had to read like this these horrible novels about like children getting like nuclear toast toasted, you know, like disfigured and like I mean it was just I mean as a child you read that stuff I mean you have nightmares you know and and this this sticks with you and uh, and it's actually um, the one thing leads to the other in a certain sense right because during the, all the nuclear scare in the Cold War times. Uh, there were like these drills where you like uh, had to like crawl under the table, you know, as if that's safe, yeah. you, you know, like from the nuclear bomber and, and all that kind of stuff. So you get used to this kind of micromanagement as well. Right. So and the kind of safetyism. So it's basically like the the, the big fear is kind of le in a certain sense leads to this, this mindset, right, that you need a micromanagement in order to be safe. So I think there's, you're there's right. I mean, it, you're right. You're right. It could absolutely go in the other direction. We're like, because you can't do anything about those big risks. Uh, you then take solace in tightly controlling the things that you can control. Uh, yeah. It's definitely cyclical. But, but it doesn't really explain their enthusiasm for throwing the border wide open, for example, and like, you know, having millions and millions and millions of, of undocumenteds come in, whether we're talking about Europe or, or in the U S uh, Probably the fruit, yeah, fruit that's, death that's, wish, right? That's not a <laughs> that's love what, that's what I, that's what I, that's, the migrants. That's I, I, I the hatred of, these, of what's already there. This like it's it's hundred percent. Well, that's motivated that's, 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 what, that's what I was trying maybe, to say. It's like, it's like maybe it's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like you have like a big the big existential risk in the Cold War of like of like you know nuclear annihilation, and then that leads to this um, this clinging on to an increasingly regulated life as a way to control what you can control, but then that in turn, leads to life being absolutely intolerable. It's no longer a life worth living. And then you want to try and destroy it. And then you're like, uh, you know what? Throw the borders open. Let the barbarians in. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, maybe, yeah. It's, maybe it's not so much a death wish as a change wish. So, like, like the idea that, like, we want some monumental change because we have become so hemmed in, because, like, it's become so stultifying. Because people that, we, we that have see... been stultifying everything are the ones wanting the big change so it's kind of like they're 
It is weird, but it's it's possible in the sense like at a at a at a level beneath language. Like Luke was talking about sort of like all the propaganda that we were treated to when we were kids. I was treated to it too in the 80s. And like, but yet what was popular? What was popular in the culture? Post-apocalyptic movies. Mel Gibson was popular. He made a career out of it. And so, like, what they like, I think at the same time that there was maybe this what some people might experience as a death drive. Other people were saying, like, let's get it over with. Let's get it over with so we can start to rebuild this puzzle in a different, according to a different diagram or something. Well, you know what I mean? Like, and then, like, it's the post-apocalypse, like, genre. I think a large part of the attraction of that is precisely like the that, that, that you're you're now free in a way that you weren't before there's no one to tell you that you can't do things right and Kulak, you like Kulak wrote an article about that about like the zombie apocalypse and how it's never going to happen how it's kind of like a, a cope fantasy um, oh it, it it absolutely is um it's it's interesting hey easy gentlemen <laughs> The year no, is young. Yeah. But, but no, like, uh, I, I'm reading quite a bit about like the Weimar Republic times in, in Germany the, um, for obvious reasons. You know, I mean, there's uh, many, par- many people have drawn like parallels you know, to our time. And you kind of it's kind of interesting because you c- had similar things going on back then, too. Right. So basically, people it was really bad. You know, like um, it was just bad all around and people just uh wanted to change you know and and especially like what what was on their minds was the whole um technocratic thing right which had begun in earnest um at the time and 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 slightly before like with the industrialization and the technicization of everything and um, i mean it's nothing compared to today but people were like really shocked and and fed up with all that and so the question was you know like um what do you do you know i mean you can go back um and uh, there was a lot of like revolutionary just talk and and this this unconscious almost drive you know to um to just shake things up you know and and whether you were on the left or on the right at the time basically it was like okay we this this needs to stop you know and and it probably will because that's just how things go you know it would just blow up on its own but we kind of should uh you know it should kind of we 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 want that to happen, right? Because we can't stand it anymore. And I think there's a lot to to this idea, actually, that um, whether everybody's conscious of this or not, you know, that there's this certain sense that um, it just can't go on like that and it won't, you know? I mean, it's not even like that we have to do anything, you know? It's just, uh, and people back then saw, saw it in the same way. They, they were convinced that, you know, that's it, you know, it will run its course and, but, it, there's also this expectation, right? And uh, I think that's a, in a lot of people's mind. I think that there's a, I don't know, this was this was said earlier. And uh, I don't know, I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to tie it back to, to drugs, right? <laughs> um, and, and I do think that it, it ties back to it with drugs and power but i read something that walter kern wrote recently i think on a on an x post and it was that we have these complex philosophical explanations for what's going on but he talks to like an insider on the uh 
like like that knows large political donors and said we don't really need political philosophy we just need names like what what's going on is just very straightforward grifting and so like all these ideologies like talking about the left and why they engage in prohibition right for our safety right but the right is where drug prohibition initially came from and moralizing teetotalers etc but throughout all of it it was an un- unholy marriage with interests like special interests you know so when you're when you're making tobacco um this this drug that's you know non grata then what you're doing is you're increasing the market for pharmaceutical stimulants you know when you when you make uh, uh, alcohol illegal you're increasing the market for something else and it, it doesn't matter what it is whether it's the border or war uh, kind of ever since I looked at like the neocons and starting the Iraq war like a lot of those people believed in it they're like yeah we're going to go democratize the Middle East and yet other people stood to make trillions in profit and so it's like, well, who's responsible? It's an unholy alliance between the two. So, you know, who was responsible for drug prohibition and um, even, you know, uh, sex, like sodomy being illegal? That was because of the right, you know? And- I think that's where the definitions get very, very confusing and why I don't think that left and right are as useful as they may have been. Well, I, and maybe I they were never very useful, useful at all. They're different moralizing justifications to use coercion to control people's right, behavior. but I'm not sure. And right, right, right. Like and somebody it's, else, yeah. somebody else that doesn't give a shit about the ideology is there every step of the way, helping it happen and profiting. Right, and that's what I'm thinking. So, like, that's maybe a better app description. Like, if we're before redrawing the map, we should say there are people who take advantage of moral panics in every age, and they manipulate opinion in order to advantage themselves by spreading moral panics that's a group that we could say that's a definition we can't say it's left or right it's something that seems to appear in every age and every polity like where we'll have that group of people uh that will exploit um anxieties uh whether they're to do with social status whether they're to do with uh legal uh uh status like uh, uh with money like that's a group of people, and then there are other there. There are also groups of people that say, "Okay, uh, no, we we thank you very much, but we would we would rather not participate in 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 whatever kind of structure you're trying to impose on us." And I think that that extends to drugs as well. Like it's sort of like you know, I, I you know, in the words of Jimi Hendrix, I am experienced. You know, I, I absolutely I don't think I, I tried to write it down one time, but I'm not sure if there's any major drug whether it's street level certainly i haven't i haven't i haven't i haven't engaged on a pharmacological um uh expedition i have not been prescribed anything but as far as it goes to the street there's nothing i haven't tried and like it's sort of like the the thing that the thing that always rankles me is that the legal drug dealers the ones that will prescribe the adderall they will essentially prescribe all of the on patent versions of anything that you can find on the street or almost anything 
And so like what rankles me about that is that again, like this seems to be a, a case of when, when you take something that's prescribed by a doctor, um, there are two things going on. One thing is, is very psychological. And the psychological play here is this. The psychological fundament of that is you are broken in some way. And this will make you whole. And so like in incorporate, this is, uh, transpose that or, or compare that to something like heroin. Compare that to something like cocaine. Compare it to mushrooms. Compare it to whatever you like. But like the people that I knew growing up that that were engaged in, in you know, in sort of like they were taking street drugs, like they never really thought of it as a way to complete their being. And I think that might make the difference between an addict and a non-addict. Um, and so essentially the entire pharmacological framework that's set up right now is saying that, is describing you as someone who is fundamentally broken in some way. And so this thing, this product completes you. I, I think it's the it's the creation of of absolute addicts um, in the same way that that uh, Brave New World uh, described them. Like, in other words, it is it is this process of saying you are incomplete without our product. And that's and I think the psychological wound of that is greater than any concoction of drugs you could find on the street. Yeah, I don't Anything like the that way, you can find. I don't like the way that it externalizes locus of control. So, right. you know, drug, drugs are very powerful substances. So is food. Um, you know, so is lifestyle. Like in terms of like how much you're sleeping, exercising, what you're doing for exercising. All these things are important. And to put the decisions about what to do with those things, I mean, specifically drugs, is just totally outside of your locus of control when you have doctors that sanctify certain drugs and it's like a prescription from a doctor now sanctifies it it is now there are now not it's now not a trade-off where you're making a decision to to use a drug that is going to have positive pros and cons because everything does um now it's it's your treatment regimen and then like you said it's something that can make you whole and i think there is something dangerous to that because it's not the truth you know there's there's no fundamental difference other than the matter amount of expertise in in terms of a medication being prescribed versus it not being prescribed you know it's just uh, expert advice essentially but there is this legitimization and sanctification of it that uh results in polypharmacy which is incredibly dangerous when you have geriatric patients, especially on eight to 10 medications, uh, the interaction Just, between eight to 10 medications, like you, you, no one knows, you know, two or three gets very complex. As soon as you have a dozen medications on board, you know, you start putting people into this zombie like state. And really the only way that they ever come out of it is by coming off all the medication and maybe one or two of those medications are, are useful, but the, the, cost benefit and just the way that physicians are manipulated in medical school and then afterwards mm -hmm. find and dine by by the pharmaceutical industry and, uh, and even the expl explanations though i think are even more dangerous they convince people I've, I've spoken to some of these people that are on five six seven medications 
And the way that they speak about themselves and the way that they speak about the world tells me that they have been wounded simply by the explanations. In other words, the explanations of what's going on inside of them, of what they are, is it has uh, in in so many ways vandalized like yeah, the, and, uh, the baseline exactly. sort of assumptions about what self is. It's it's yeah. it's really scary. And then yeah, I I had the same you know um, experience when talking to you know some of these elderly people, especially I you know who was are on these medications. It's like. And they get like scared, you know, I mean, that's how they do it. They they basically send the message. Oh, if you're not, you can, I mean, you can refuse it. You know, it's just that you probably will like die earlier, like go get sick or whatever. And so it's basically, the, that's the psychological hook. Right. And once you, you accept that you, you kind of give up, give up your, your autonomy, your, your spiritual being, as you said, Mar, right. It's like, it's, it runs pretty deep, right. Because you, you just um, let yourself, be scared and and then you know it's like um i don't know i thought you know like psychosomatic um you know effects are like well studied well well accepted you know concept for, for a long time uh, but apparently not right i mean it's like i mean you scare people and you expect them to get better you know i mean or it's like um the, the, all the health benefits that um, a, a, a good mindset, you know, like a, a fulfilled life and, uh, you know, what we were talking about before, the, those rituals, uh, the bonding, you know, and all of that. I mean, it's just, I mean, it is well studied, but it's also just plain obvious, you know, that this is like actually super important for health, you know, for just physical health. Um, so I'm not saying that's all there is to it, obviously, right? I mean, there's like both sides, you know, you have like the the materialist kind of um, medicine that that plays a role, right? And but you ha also have that mental aspect, and and that just gets totally lost, right? Um, and how can you not take that into account? It's 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 a mystery. It's a mystery. Well, that what you're talking about essentially is when they're scaring patients is nocebo, you know. So like there's yeah well understood term happens all the time and my feel that happens a lot with uh imaging so you know somebody gets uh an mri in like really common in the lower back you can have uh you get lower back injuries and they tend to uh they tend to, s to remain on imaging so it's like if you get a disc herniation it's probably painful when it happened it's probably really painful when it happened, or even a disc bulge. Probably you're like a little. I, I I can speak to this from personal experience. It's terrible. Yeah, and well, I mean, it it varies depending on the extent of the injury, but down the road, like that's going to heal, and then down the road, that that's still going to show up on MR, and so somebody could have back pain that could not be related to that, and um, there's there's people that are completely pain free that have gnarly uh imaging and but the way that most physicians since they don't have a lot of experience in musculoskeletal care at least not like ones that aren't specialists like say in primary care you know they, they'll read an mri and say oh yeah you have degenerative disc disease and people will be like disease like oh i have this disease like i'm just gonna have back pain forever because my discs are degenerating and it's like no i mean like 50% of people in their thirties have some degree of that, um, of those changes. And if you understand how to communicate that to a patient and like what it actually means, then you can avoid nociboing them 
and essentially making them worse or making yeah, them just because of the that, just because of the structure you. of our spines like it is practically impossible to be a mammalian biped past a certain relatively low age i think it's like in your 20s without encouraging incurring some degree of uh skeletal damage that will show up on uh on a medical imaging scan um yeah even calling it damage like there's like osteoarthritis, like the way that I think about it is your body lays down bone to control motion. So like when you have too much motion, your body lays down bone and that stabilizes the joint. And that mm. happens in your spine. It's called degenerative joint disease or degenerative disc disease. You know, so if you lose a little bit of disc height, now all those ligaments that are spanning that joint are functionally loose. So you get too much motion, you got instability. Your body lays down bone to control that motion. So it's not necessarily even damage; it's just change. It's your body adapting, right. and uh, there's but, tons of people that have very advanced degenerative disc disease that their backs feel completely great, and you know people can get there. But people hold on, like it's what Mark was saying about like part of your identity. People hold on to these diagnoses, and it becomes a part of their right. identity. Like, hey, but, this yeah. is like I have a herniated disc in my back no so like when i when i when i when i threw up my back deadlifting uh a few years ago um you know i was like reading up on all this stuff and uh some of the bodybuilding forums especially were talking about exactly this dynamic grant we're like um you know you would you hurt your back you go into the doctor they're like oh you need to do an mri or something and then you do it and then they find like all of this quote-unquote damage and then they terrify you with like, well, we found this and that. And, you know, you should definitely, you know, don't lift anything heavy. Like, you know, you don't strain yourself. Like, take, take it easy. Um, we maybe this, need, this, need to do this, surgery. This makes to, you, yeah, I, I think that's fascinating because that kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? Um, like with the smoking stuff, for example, I mean, um, how much, you know, like of the health um, risks, um are coming from like basically the the hypnotic suggestion <laughs> you know that uh that if you smoke you get lung cancer if you smoke you are like unhealthy in general you know you're like the scum of the earth you it's are unquestionably like... a component so yeah. like i mean i'm not know, saying it's, 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 it's an it, attack right? yeah. I, I agree it's an attack it's it, i think it's a, i think it is an aligned attack like there, there's there's no question that there is like that any kind of propaganda is essentially a war against your mind and that that includes advertising that includes any number of you know whether they're for products or politicians or whatever like every single time that somebody is reaching out to you from across the ether to tell you about something terrible something terrible that may happen to you it, i think our default response should be this is an attack you know you know what i mean it's just sort of like particularly when you think about the idea of the limitedness of our being the idea that we're all going to die uh, some of us will die horribly. Some of us will die in our sleep. Some of, uh, the one, the one, the, the one common factor is we're all going to die. The idea of reaching out across space and time in order to inject fear into someone for any reason, for any, I, I really mean for any reason. I understand that there are probably edge cases like where it's just sort of like, okay, we want to reach out and warn some someone about something that's that's extremely dangerous that they're doing. Um, but like if that danger doesn't expand outside of the realm of that individual person, then that's an attack. 
you know, and it's, and it's, and, 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 and I think that you can gauge like, like the, the sort of the, 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 the negative quality of that attack, the, 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 the aggression and hostility attack by the things that flower up around it. Like if we talked about syntaxes, for example, the idea that like New York city, for example, for the past 20 years has been like, you know, just sort of layering on a series of taxes, syntaxes against cigarettes is a big one. There was also um, what I used to like to call the alcohol, uh, I assume. Yes. Alcohol. Not as much though. Interestingly enough, not as much and not, and nothing on sugar. Forget it. Sugar's fine. Yes. Sugar apparently like, and I'm talking about like not natural sugar. I'm talking about Bloomberg wanted to, didn't he? Like he was, he was talking. He wanted to, but not, but, but he had, but he had special pleading for new customers that were coming in. I never saw a 7-Eleven in New York city in my life. And like when Bloomberg under Bloomberg's reign, like 7-Elevens blossomed. You know, it was like mm. kind of like the cherry blossoms of China. Suddenly they were everywhere. And so you, you had like this, this essentially this, this corporate entity that came in and, and, and they, and then knocking on the door, Bloomberg like allowed for special um, circumstances for them. In other words, he wanted to put a syntax on all of them, on, on, on buttered popcorn, on, on all drinks on all um, mm. soft drinks that were above 32 ounces. I think it was what it was, except for 7-Eleven and except for Starbucks, you know, because again, like these are the tools of, of, of control and of power. And so like, and so you make these special exceptions because like you want the money, you want the receipts from these people. And so it's sort of like, so, so in every, it buried in all of these things. Uh, and I remember like quite, uh, there was the, the most amazing part to me was like when they were doing what I used to call it the um, save the world lane. So like essentially like another one of these schemes was that like they were going to, to to put in a um in other words like a uh, a lane a special lane like where if, if you had a certain number of passengers in it like then they would say like that's a carpool lane and so therefore we'll give you a break on your commute right and so the problem yeah, I read about the that, problem yeah. with this yeah the problem turned out to be guess what the problem turned out to be the problem turned out to be that people adapted. And so what happened was like you'd have commuters in Jersey that were standing across the other side of this bridge. They would wait there and people would pick them up. Strangers, in other words, these were like, in other words, they were unofficial cabs, essentially. People would be commuting to work. They pick up strangers at the foot of the bridge, right, or at various points along the way to there. And they would go through the carpool lane, the save the world lane, and, 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 and everything was fine, right? But it wasn't fine because they weren't getting the revenues that they wanted. Because in other words, it worked too well. And it's the same way with syntaxes. It's sort of like they, they, they if, if syntax, if, if, if syntaxes were truly meant to, to turn off people from smoking or to turn them off from drinking or whatever it is, if they work too well, guess what? It would be a problem. They started arresting people. They started ticketing people that were picking up strangers in order to use the carpool lane. They don't want it to work. They want the money. It's all it is. They yeah, just that's definitely that's that, that's definitely that's always been, I think, like a a huge part of uh, of of that dynamic, right? Is like if you it's can, this virtue fig leaf, like it's you, you, it's you, it's, you, it's you, fucking you nonsense. Gin up, you, you gin up a scare around it, and like you know, now you have the excuse to tax the ever living shit out of it uh, that you would not have had before. 
Like it was just would have been it would have struck it was wait, you're not you're not trying to make money from it, you see. You're you're just trying to dissuade people from doing it. You're doing it for the best of reasons. And you're it's even your own interests, you know. Um yeah. That dynamic of uh you know, scaring people with medical providers, I I think it's more tragic than that because they, I feel like, I think a lot of times they think they're helping, you know, they think that mod using fear to modify behavior is going to be in the patient's best interest. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think, yeah, that's, that's what's so disturbing about it. I mean, mean, there's a, it's crazy. There's a a sort of like confluence of interests, right? I mean, like you have your kind of political interests that just want to raise revenue and then you have, um your sort of uh, public health types who like ge- are like true believers like they, they genuinely think like oh like you know if we uh if we lie about something it's a little white lie because it'll actually you know it'll be a noble lie because it will prevent people from doing a bad thing yeah but first of all like like what has been noted nocebo so everything has not like placebo and nocebo. The way that we can talk about both of them simultaneously is we can say that they're non-specific effects. So anything mm-hmm. that you do is going to have specific effects and non-specific effects. Non-specific effects is largely talking about the psychological aspect that can have dramatic influences on your health. So using fear in order to get after positive health outcomes is like probably you're always going to be unsuccessful because you have to overcome those negative non-specific effects that you're that you're delivering and in order to do that um like the intervention has to be so powerful that you would probably be able to sell them on it without using fear in the first place Mm -hmm. and the other the other thing that screws it up is that fear as everyone knows turns off your cognition like you can't think as clearly and rationally when you're afraid um, or, or under any conditions of powerful emotion. And so like, what, what's the best way ahead to make people's health better? If we wanted to actually, like if we had public health people that really wanted to do good, they would never use fear. Like that would be off limits because de facto they're causing harm off the bat that then they have to dig out of that hole and you almost never have a controlled enough experiment ahead of time to know that your intervention is going to be effective and how what the effect size is going to be. So you got that. And then on top of it, it's like, what do we really want if we want people to be healthy? Like, really, we want to be able to train people to evaluate and make better decisions themselves, right? So that they can make better health decisions across time and space forever for every particular issue and public health essentially does the opposite of that and and they have a track record of continuous failure i think because of this because they don't recognize that really what public health ought to be about is educating people and empowering people to have an internal locus of control and that they can use their own position, awareness of their own preferences and values in enhancing their own cognitive function, because there's, you know, positive psychology does that in order to be healthier, you know? And it's like, they, they want to just use the easy button. They want to take the ring. They want to take the one ring of power 
and be like, we can do good with this ring. It's like, no. Yeah. Premier, you can't. But even even on a a more, uh, like, you know, I mean, that's kind of like, would be like the ideal, right? Uh, uh, Like empowering people, you know, to, to be, to have their own control and their own, um like take on things right and and in in when it comes to health but even a level below that you know like i mean just stop uh frightening people i mean that would be a good start you know even if you just give better uh counsel you know i mean for example like um well, how about, uh, my how about you this? know my my oh sorry no go, any... finish your point i've got a solution yeah, yeah. all right perfect um so uh, just to give an example, you know, like um, my the my my mother's uh, doctor, you know, when when she was pregnant with me, actually counseled her to to continue smoking, you know, because I mean I won't go into like the details of there there, there was a, a history, right, um, health history and stuff, and uh, and uh, basically um, he said like, okay, I mean maybe you can reduce a little bit, but you know, like the the stress you're going to experience now by stopping to smoke during pregnancy will offset, you know, like the, um, the benefits you might get from that. So, um, I mean, that's, you know, I was just saying, like, I mean, or imagine like a, a public health official saying something like, Oh yeah. I mean, don't you do, you guys don't need like any, um, uh, bicycle lane, you know, you, 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 you're probably going to be fine. You know, like, don't be afraid, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I mean that kind of stuff. I mean, if we just had like a, a more sensible um, advice from from the medical establishment, that would be like already such a huge step, you know. And then you know, empowering. It reminds people. me that, that reminds me of Lukashenko at the beginning of uh, beginning of COVID when he was just like, "Ah, go play some hockey, drink some vodka, you'd be fine." <laughs> okay, so he, so here's the solution. So um, while Grant, while you were talking, well, I'm I'm joking, you know, half joking. But uh, while you were talking, it reminded me of, so there's this, this Polish psychologist, uh, Dabrowski, um, that, uh, yeah. that I'm familiar with. And one of his principles of psychotherapy was that when he saw a patient, he, he would prefer if he only saw them once, you know, maybe twice, maybe a few times. The purpose of psychotherapy was to get them to be able to do it on their own so that they didn't have to come back over and over and over and over again. He thought that psychiatry, like 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 Freudian psychoanal, uh, psychoanalysis, what do we call it? Analyst analysis, psychoanalysis. psychoanalysis, where you go, you know, at least once a week or multiple times a week for the rest of your life. He thought that was ridiculous, absurd, and unhealthy. Now, so I was thinking maybe the same thing should be applied to to medicine, and to specifically like pharmacology, because a doctor should probably like this is for the most part in general terms their interventions should be specific and temporary. So if you have a broken bone, you get it set. If you need surgery, you get surgery. But when it comes, and if you need medicine, they give it to you like for the specific purpose that it's needed for. Now, of course, there are gonna be exceptions, but that it should probably be limited to, to that for the most part. So you don't have, that you won't have doctors saying, okay, well, we're gonna put you on this drug for the rest of your life because there's this thing wrong with you and, uh, and, and et cetera. Like, Keep keep the keep the doctors to being these these like um, techni- technicians of the body for temporary fixes and uh, and and things that might need some time. Well, I don't know, Grant. What do you think about that? Should should like should drugs yeah, be so limited I- to specific interventions and? Uh, 
I think there's a lot of providers that do that, but I will tell, I'll give you a specific example that's pretty horrifying of why that doesn't happen. Like look at insulin dependent diabetes. So type two diabetes mellitus. Um, you're not allowed to say as an endocrinologist that you can cure that. Even though um, I know an endocrinologist who's gotten people off of insulin, you know, and it's like, you're not allowed to call it curing it though. You have to like say it's in remission or some shit because the American Diabetes Association, like who are their biggest donors, like Kellogg's and like these companies that, you know, sell a bunch of carbs. And like, frankly, like I'm not, I'm not one of these people that's like, oh, like carbs are the enemy. But if, if you have type two, like if you have insulin dependent diabetes or you're developing insulin resistance, then, you know. Have, having a hypocaloric diet, there might be some marginal benefit to reducing the carbohydrate intake because you get bigger boluses of insulin release. That's going to create more insulin resistance, et cetera. So like there's, there's conditions that physicians in, in specialties are trained to think of as chronic conditions that aren't necessarily chronic conditions. And mm. when a patient- Well, here's like a- to do so like lifestyle is almost always the most powerful intervention so like sleep exercise nutrition mm -hmm. like getting all mm -hmm. that stuff lined up and what will happen a lot of times is physicians will be like well i told the patient to do those things and they didn't and so now i prescribe medication and it's like well maybe you're not trying hard enough like mm -hmm. maybe you need to do a better job of figuring out how to be successful with lifestyle intervention well, I mean, the patients themselves often feed into this. There's a sort of way. Well, yeah, because it, right? yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's mutually, like, pill, it's mutually beneficial. Like, you no, want to think me the pill. Like, I don't. Yeah, I don't, you want to think do, yeah. that a, cert, a surgery is going to fix it, or a pill is going to fix it. Like something where you don't have to do anything. Put in the time and effort. Well, magic. It's it's magic. Because but, and again, it's sort of like and there is an addiction to magic, but it's. Here's the weird thing, though, is like, and this is anecdotal, but what you and Harrison were both talking about, Grant, like, it's sort of like, I've heard this. I know medical professionals intimately, a number of them, and I've heard them essentially like, you know, they 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 talk the talk like they're 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 definitely saying a lot of the same things that both of you are saying like like in the in the in the realm of like okay we really should prioritize we should western medicine should move away from the model that we're currently in we move, move towards more of a model of temporary care follow you know supplemented by good advice and in terms of like uh, geared towards like changing certain habits in order to create a greater probability of 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 positive results in the future they pay lip service to that but the fact of the matter is, is a lot of these people are also under the gun. Like there is just as just as they and and sort of like their benefactors in the pharmacological sphere, just as they are sort of casting these spells of fears in a certain direction, there is also a lot of anxiety in that in those fields as well, where they're afraid that they'll lose their license, where they're afraid of this, they're afraid of that. Again, it goes back to liability. It goes back to the insurance industry. Yeah, the insurance like, is, this, I think is lawyers are at the bottom. At the pit of Abaddon or Apollon, depending on whether you're Greek or Jewish, at the bottom of that pit is a lawyer, I swear. And this lawyer, <laughs> this or an insurance agent. 
and like or both like a two-headed monster and like really like if you drill deep enough that is the the fear emanation comes from these beings it comes out of these institutions it, it's it's projected in waves that they don't even really notice because i think a lot of these people logically know they agree with grant they agree with harrison like they they agree at a fundamental level and yet like there is this spell of fear that is cast upon them too. It was never stronger in my lifetime than during COVID-19. But yeah. you've seen elements of it before where they've gotten a certain position. They have acquired a certain, and, and by the way, and again, I know some of these people intimately, and I respect the fact that they worked hard for the sorts of opportunities and advantages that are earned through these positions. This is a scarce resource. Right. People, not just the intel from an intelligence level, a lot of these people are quite intelligent, but also the perseverance, the idea to operate in that sphere, to operate in the sphere of of health in general uh, uh, is a there's a lot of pressure. Um, there's a lot of um, uh, sort of horror as well, uh, to some degree, like in operating, particularly if you're operating in the emergency medicine field. But like in all in all fields, there is a lot of there there are various pressures, and like they are buttressed by all of these anxieties about like, well, why am I doing this thing that is so difficult? Um, uh, if I can lose it at any moment, I better play it safe. And so, yeah, well, they can speak freely in certain environments, uh, as Grant was saying. You know, it's sort of like there are certain words that they're not allowed to say. There are certain. Um, uh, there's certain boundaries that are both like sort of some of them are very, very hard and fast and other ones are kind of blurry. And so I think it gets them into this state where even though they want to provide that good advice, even though they want to lead, they are terrified to do it. They are absolutely terrified. And it makes them say weird things. It makes them act in contradictory ways, you know. And then and then you also have like the 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 unfortunate in my opinion, like there is, I don't know if it's something that is sort of part of someone's intrinsic makeup or something that maybe is exemplified if you're in that field long enough, but there is a kind of a, a God complex that develops with a lot of these professionals. It, it, it's just there. I'm not, it's, this is not me like casting moral aspersions upon people who display it, but it's certainly apparent. And it's one of those things that magnifies if it's left unattended. And, and again, to me, that means spiritual attention. Like you need to like be able to become aware of yourself and start asking yourself all the big hard questions, it, regardless of what your answers to them are. Like if you avoid asking them, period, I think that that could kind of, you know, you, you can have a situation where like somebody has like a minor God pop complex that you know, uh, metastasizes into something that's, 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 that's almost inhuman. And so, and so with all of those pressures operating at the same time, even though like they know that everything that you are saying is correct, they cannot self-correct. And like, that's that, that, that means that I think that the ultimate system that needs to be smashed is that lawyer is that system is, is a legal and liability system that like that that is the root of all evil not not money weirdly enough but risk you know uh, yeah sorry yeah i just wanted to uh go back to um what harrison was talking about uh with dabrowski and a sort of concrete example from the world of psychiatry 
is depression. So, uh, of course, you know, these days, what is it like one in 10 Americans are taking some kind of, uh, oh, we lost Luke. Okay. Um, are, 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 uh, taking some kind of antidepressant drug, like an SSRI or NOAI or whatever, uh, you know, daily. And they've been on it for years and years and they'll basically always be on it. And it causes all kinds of weird side effects. So then, you know, their psychiatrist has to adjust their dose or, you know, change the medication or whatever it is. Um, and it doesn't actually cure the depression. It, the, you know, the evidence for this is, I think, overwhelming at this point. It has basically no effect. But it is highly addictive. can't just stop using it. So back in the early 1980s, um, there was psychiatric research using MDMA, where they found that something like two or three interventions um, uh, stretch out over like uh, a year or two, where they would give the patient... Uh, a dose of MDMA and then uh, have a trained psychotherapist sit down with them for, you know, a few hours and the drug would have the effect of opening them up and making them very empathetic both towards themselves and towards others, um, which then together with the psychotherapist, they could get real insight into their condition. Uh, and the clinical results were that, you know, three interventions, three, three, three treatments over the course of a couple of years, and the cure rate was pretty much 100%. Like, people's depression went away because they were able to identify why, why they, were, they were depressed, like whatever, you know, it was in their life that was making them depressed or whatever it was in their own psychological makeup that was leading them to be depressed, and they stopped being depressed. Like, they changed those things in their lives. Uh, but... MDMA was first synthesized in the early 20th century. It's been off patent for an incredibly long time. But by the 80s, it may well have already been a controlled substance because it was a party drug. Uh, but even if it wasn't, like, I, I don't know the specific history on that aspect. Um, the drug companies weren't going to be able to make any money from it at all because it costs like pennies per pill to synthesize and it's off patent. So like, what are you going to do? And furthermore, like what, three treatments for pennies each? Like, how are we supposed to make money on that? Versus something that costs, you know, like several hundred dollars a month in prescription fees and that the patient has to take every day for effectively the rest of their life. Like, of course, they're going to go for the second one, even though it doesn't work. Um, so, yeah, just, you know, it, a, a, a very concrete example illustrating exactly what Dabrowski was talking about, I think. Um I saw a couple of messages come up here. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Was so next? I, Jump in. has a, a tremendous amount of power within it. And I think there's this dialectic about alternative, like your complementary and alternative medicine, where they advance stuff that I, 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 don't, I think it's stupid, frankly. Like, could, could you maybe, like, um homeopathy i i think it's stupid like there's no molecules left like supposedly you know the substance aligned the the uh, molecular structure of the water such that it still contains the properties i don't i don't buy it that's like an extraordinary claim and the evidence is pretty weak for for homeopathy and so you have people that practice allopathies you know physicians and the really aggressive ones like to dunk on 
complementary and alternative medicine because there's aspects of it that are i mean it's just really easy to dunk on from a materialist perspective um that's not to say that there can't be strong non-specific effects and i'm not even discounting the possibility that there's specific effects that are just very nuanced and difficult to describe but the most powerful and obvious effects in medicine do come from allopathy when it where it's appropriate like if you need insulin and you don't have it like you die without it if you need antibiotics because you have a particular bacterial infection that you're going to die without those antibiotics you need it uh certain surgical procedures that if you don't get them you are going to die or you're going to be friggin miserable um, and there's really no other alternative. And so that's a lot of power. And since allopathy has that power, why would anybody be surprised that all the vultures come circling? Like all these people that, that see opportunity and power and want to leverage it to their own ends, obviously they focused on allopathy for a very long time. It's not because allopathy is evil or those techniques aren't effective and useful in many contexts. Um, it's been corrupted and perverted just because it's so powerful. And that's why we see the structure that Mark was talking about, where um, it's just this kind of pervasive, interdependent thing, insurance, third-party payers. So like individuals aren't making decisions uh, based on quality or affordability. Like all of these things develop not as an accident. They develop because allopathy is very powerful. And in particular, because the ability to cartelize uh, prescribing powerful medications. Um, that, that's, a, that's a huge source of power and, uh, you know, creates a cartel that there's massive incentives to, to gain and maintain control over. So I just, I just wanted to point that out as a thing that explains some of what Mark was talking about. And I think it explains what John was talking about too, because those same monetary uh, moneyed interests, like they're gonna look at MDMA, they're gonna look at psychedelics and they're gonna try and cast this aura of irrespectability around them. Um, you know, that you're not really serious or legitimate if you're looking at anything outside the common scope of practice. And so like best practices and uh, standard of care, like all these kinds of things, they're, they're really just weapons from moneyed interest to try and control the rain, like the Overton window in medicine. Because well, it's, it's really, the, it, re it's, it's the money aspect of it. Yeah. Because money after it, right? Like, yeah, like, I mean, like drugs, like with what's available now, everything that we know in science, repurposed drugs, in in a creative mind, there are solutions out there to a lot of the healthcare problems that people have. That, like, for example, I'll, I'll give you an example of something that is is pretty niche. Um, you know, our our friend Alex over at Trio Woe, his spouse has a, uh, and he talked about this on, on his blog, has a rare uh, 
constellation of mitochondrial issues. And so like people talk about chronic fatigue syndrome, like this is a thing that there's probably ways to develop repurpose drugs, um, maybe develop new drugs, but you can't do it because the phase three trials for new medications are, it's like a hundred million dollars. And so it's completely controlled. And, you know, the FDA controls that. And then the pharmaceutical companies aren't going to go down that road. So like the bottom line is if there was just freedom of maneuver and people had the ability to make decisions for themselves, that would open up new frontiers of advances in medicine um, that just can't happen now because yeah, yeah, and the doctors I talk to you say the same thing. Yeah, they, they say the same to, thing. They yeah, say they're we're not, not afraid to sacrifice their their standard of living. And we're exactly, to exactly, it's the trade off that they're not willing to make because like the these are intelligent people, and I talk to them and and they 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 they, they again there is a lot of there is a lot of crossover here between what you're saying and what they say. The problem again is is that particularly with the allopathic um, sort of like. Um, uh, like one of the ways that it's described to me is to sort of like, okay, I can only clean up after the car crash. And like, by that time, there's very little I can do. By the time the patient gets into my, into my purview, like all of the damage has been done. And so therefore I just feel like a grease monkey that's like trying to tune up lemons or trying to make them drivable for maybe another, you know, hundred miles or so. And like, so there's a frustration there. There's a frustration level in terms of like, well, it's, it's, the system is so hopelessly broken. I'm just going to do whatever good I can in the, in the middle of this broken system without like any real um, uh, courage that it would take to say, to stand up to that system and say, I want to practice medicine. Like uh, this is, this is something that's been expressed to me before by a doctor that I know. Well, he says like, I don't feel free to practice medicine. Think about that. This is a doctor in a major hospital network. That says I don't, and 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 a doctor that has you know is, has seniority, and he says I don't feel free to practice medicine, and they want to, right? And like they, I've even spoken to doctors that have talked about like, well, I just want to go into private practice. Like I'm essentially going to be a, um, you know, a, a, a almost in the older model of the of the boutique sort of roving doctor, like where mm-hmm. I'm just going to go around and or I'm going to offer my services privately to a small group of individuals. Maybe that's the way it needs to go. Maybe this is the answer. The answer, the answer is as long as you can escape that sort of that balance, that those those bounds of, of liability and, and insurance. And like this is the thing. It's like it doesn't take that much. All it would take is a waiver, really. Like so much, so much of law can be circumvented through waivers. You know, I, I remember I would talk to, 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 to uh, people in the nineties about like where they were, they were, they would talk, they would talk for hours and hours about how unfair it is that there isn't any gay marriage. And I remember like th- there was one of the, during one of these Jeremiah's, I just kind of broke out and I said, why don't you just go to a lawyer? They'll draw up the documents for you. You could go ahead and become somebody's like legal, uh, you know, you could, you could, you could draw up any contract you want that would like emulate marriage in every uh, shape and form. And then you get into that weird realm though, where people want, it's like, it's not really, they don't want the legal rights. They don't, they, a lot of things can be circ- circumvented by waivers. They don't want that. They want to be part of some greater status game. Like that loss of status yeah. is, 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 is what's really going to like 
Yeah. They want to be they want to be a big authoritarian in they want to be a big authority in the medical establishment. Like they losing that has a certain value that you know differs from person to person, but it seems to be it seems to be valuable to a lot of people, you know. Well, I mean, the, the point of medicine should be to, you know, heal people, right? But in practice, uh, it's to make money from the point of view of the large medical corporations and the hospitals and uh, to have social status and make money from the point of view of a very large number of doctors. And from my point of view as a free market dude, like if you can make people better, it, it shouldn't be too hard to figure out how to make money doing that without transgressing against the the purpose of the profession. Well, this is, this is, I think one of the things that, you know, underlying the kind of modern discontent with market capitalism um, is this kind of, it's never, I don't think it's ever spoken about much, but I mean, if you look back at like, you know, earlier, simpler times, right. Uh, You know, the medieval period or what have you. I mean, very rarely was making money the central point of what anyone was doing. It, you, you, you made money. It still happened, right? Like, you know, if you were a doctor, like you were still able to make money or some other kind of professional, like you still were probably pretty comfortable. Um, but the purpose of your profession wasn't just making money. It was the practice of the profession. It was like that was what took yeah. And I think losing that, you know, losing that's very unhealthy. I, if your primary purpose is making money, like I guess I just don't think it's healthy. It's like it's but because at that point, like there's nothing sacred about what you're doing. Right? Yeah, so when you're, when, when, when you're, right. Like when you're what you're engaged in is a sacred thing. You're not going to cut corners just to make an extra buck. You're not going to deceive people about your capabilities or uh, the, the virtues of your product. Um just to make an extra buck like you're 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 gonna be like no like what i'm doing is important to me for its own for its own reasons and, well, compensation you know, comes in many forms too it's not just money i mean sure. like like i just mean like in terms of just like assets like that you gain like advantages that you gain in life isn't just money 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 is part of it um friends though uh network um people that you can rely on in a, in a bad situation like the right that's a kind of that's a kind of currency. Like everything is currency in terms of like uh, you know building something. Right, as you said, respect among peers. Like not necessarily social power, because like the idea of like, well, I want to uh, accumulate more social power. It's like, well, how do you spend that? You know, it's sort of like, okay, like is that is that a defensive currency? Is that something where like, okay, that means I I'm afforded more opportunities to fuck up. Or does it mean this is a this is a uh, some kind of a bribery tool or a blackmail to an extortion tool, something that I could pay agents in order to cause problems for people um, uh, that I don't like or that I in some I way um, I, I, need something I from? I don't think most people were even thinking about it in those terms. You know, like I, I think that kind of like cold calculating, like how do I monetize my social networks? Um, like this was not a way that most people thought in the past you know no no not most people but like most people were peasants in the past and a very few were aristocrats and aristocrats thought that way i I think i'm I'm more talking about your sort of professional classes um 
you know, in the in like the medieval period, who generally by and large weren't aristocrats. Uh like the the doctors and the lawyers and the the craftsmen and so on. Like these were they weren't peasants either, you know, they they sort of the middle class, right? But like they Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, I agree with that. Like kind of a bourgeois layer. Yeah, I mean, you have like, well, I mean, the bourgeois were your property owners, technically. That was kind of a later thing that came about sort of in the 19th century to challenge the old aristocracy. Um, but like, I mean, I, again, just like talking about like your professionals, you know, like specifically, I guess. Like plague doctors, right? you mean? Like, like, or yeah, like, I mean, do you always, there's certain like always, bakers, I mean, like people with a. There, there have always been like physicians, you know, and like, you know, various kinds of craftsmen and artisans and and what have you. People like specialize in like in a certain like you know blacksmiths, right? Who like specialize like in a certain kind of thing that they do. And of course, like they need to support you, you need to support yourself doing it, right? Like the baker isn't just gonna give his bread away. Right. But right. you know, he's also not just doing it for the money. Like if there was no money in it, he wouldn't do it, obviously, because he'd starve to death. Uh, but you know, the point of it really is to make good bread, you know, like he's, he's, and if, and if that's kind of the central point of it, he's not going to poison the bread because he can make a little bit of extra money that way. Right. Um, the blacksmith isn't going to make deliberately shoddy goods because, you know, that you know, <laughs> using, using lower quality iron means he gets more return business or something because his stuff. I want to, I want to talk to you about China. That. I want to talk to you about the manufacturing base right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to talk to you about built-in obsolescence. Dude, you know, dude, I mean, I, like, come I, on I, now. Yeah. I, I've actually got a whole essay I'm working on, 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 <laughs> on, on this planned obsolescence because it's, it's always just enraged me. Um, you're right. So... You're right. There's a change. And why does that change? I agree <laughs> with you now. Like, why is that change? So what was the arc of that change that led us to this place of, of this, of built-in no, obsolescence? I, 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 I think, I think uh, it was managerialism. So, like, I know everyone likes to dump on managerialism these days. It's like, it's like you know, trendy to use us. That's maybe why I'm doing it. But, like, um, once you have a class of people who can sort of seamlessly, frictionlessly move from one kind of industry or service to the next... <laughs> Uh, for whom any of these activities are simply ways to make money. No intrinsic one, no like no no intrinsic difference between running uh, you know an auto parts manufacturing plant or uh, a chain of coffee shops. It's all ultimately just a corporate structure designed to generate revenue. And uh, it's and you have this. It's the, it's the changes in accountability that accompany that. Because you yes. can't, if, if you get an economic hitman manager that comes into an organization and liquidates right. capital to improve market, uh, the, the share price in the near term, setting up a catastrophic fall after they've moved on, then nobody's nobody can hold that individual accountable. And it's just yeah. the same reason why the blacksmith, you know, in times gone by, was motivated to produce quality because his customers would easily be able to hold him accountable. Because his hit exactly the person who's doing the work and who runs the business and owns the business and whose name is on it is all the same person. So if he produces shoddy work, that's his name on the line, right? Exactly. He can't like just go and you know become the baker, 
because he has no idea how to be. Whereas like the when when you have a chain of blacksmiths that are being run by some managers, that manager of that business collapses, he could just like hop on to the you know bakery chain and he'll run that instead. And it, yes, that's a exactly that accountability aspect that 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 sort of like uh response the disconnect between responsibility and power. Um but also just like well, the, what were those the, people doing back then? Like like the people that were are our managers now, the people in that managerial structure, like I, I assume that they had counterparts like during the age that we're describing, uh, the age of blacksmiths, the age of bulletproofing uh, your not, armor, whatever you not, want to talk about. Not, no, like, not, not, not really. I, I mean, like you had they like, had no counterparts like there was the, what, what were those people up to? Well, I mean, like you had you had a bureaucracy, but like it was much smaller. Um, and like, you know, but I meant like, like, like a character, like a, I'm talking more from a character level. In other words, I'm saying that probably yeah, the character yeah, of human yeah. beings have not changed all that much over the past. I don't know, man. I, I, I feel like they were peasants back then. <laughs> like, just maybe they were That's interesting. Maybe they were, were they whores? It's possible they were. It's possible they were prostitutes. They all came from. No, I'm serious. It's possible that they were prostitutes. Like, it, like they're they're. It, it really is like a conundrum. Because you say like, well, what is what is the person that 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 exhibits those qualities, the qualities that you just described, where it's just sort of like, well, I don't really have any particular, you know, like mercenaries of some sort. Let's put it that way. Um, um, hirelings, like people that would just do anything for for a price. Yeah, but the, whether the they're prostitutes or assassins. Yeah, the problem isn't necessarily managers. Right. The problem is managers with no loyalty. So like, and this, idea, this idea that came from like Robert McNamara, that like the organizational man, which John alluded to, where it's like it's the same running a car company as it is managing a like a, a, a large segment of Starbucks, you know, it, it's false. It's not true. Like there's so much implicit knowledge required to be a manager of a complex organization like that, that if you don't have it and you go in, you focus on metrics, you're just going to tear everything apart in order to yeah. do, you know, and then also your skill set in reality is not as transportable and mobile as you might think, you know, like as, as this, as this lie tries to convince people, like you can't be a, a chief manager in, in auto manufacturing and move into uh, hospitals and do a good job. You're, you're not going to do a good job. Like you're, you're going to suck. Well, and most of them are not doing good jobs. And yeah. They, they, they because are. of this. Because so, they, yeah, they, I agree. That's a, yeah. Like, this so, so, so so is the, 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 the problem is not having managers. Exactly. It's the professionalization of it. Right. So like, I, I suspect. The one size fits all dilemma. If you were if you were to go back a century ago, um, the majority of people in managerial roles at large enterprises uh, um, are probably worked their way up through that business. And they started on the factory floor, and they showed some talent and ability, and they just kind of got promoted up. And like you know, twenty years later, they're managing it on behalf of the the owner. Um, and like, you know, they're going to have this intimate understanding of it. They're going to know the people there and, you know, they're going to help everything run more or less seamlessly. And there's a huge difference between that and you just hire on some freshly minted MBA with a nice haircut 
uh, and, you know, slot him into this position. Um, and he, he just kind of like applies like his spreadsheet knowledge and then ruins it because he doesn't actually understand how the business works. Um, yeah, then ru ruins it yeah. and then is able to go find a job in some other industry where their reputation isn't ruined. And so like that's yeah. that's the myth is that they're transportable. And if that myth could be destroyed, then they would be able to be held accountable. Like that, I think that's the problem. The problem isn't managers. The problem is it's just accountability. Like you can't have power without accountability. If you do, you end up with all the problems that we have. It's distributed failure. It's distributed accountability, which is the problem. The problem is, is that anytime something goes wrong in a large enough organization, everybody's going to point a finger in another direction. And mm -hmm. so therefore the, the, the accountability for any, even if it's a disaster, like it's going to be spread so thin. It's kind of like the insurance market, right? Yeah, you can't uh, find who's spreading risk. You're spreading uh, responsibility. Or the, and like, uh, sort of like, so the, then the no one's responsible. The withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? We're like, yeah. who's responsible? No who's heads responsible? rolled. You know, no heads rolled. No one's or responsible. The financial collapse in 2008 <laughs> or like the whole COVID debacle, you know? Um, later, Harrison. Uh, or like, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've got a whole essay actually that I've been working on 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 this topic as well, because <laughs> um, it it is deeply frustrating. Who's in charge, right? It's like no one's in charge, but yet there's a sense of like overwhelming power bearing down upon you, uh, the source of which you can't point to, which I think also breeds a lot of paranoia, I think a lot of conspiracy theory, a lot of the motivation for that actually comes out of this. Um, this absolute lack of clarity about where power actually resides inside the system. All right. That sounds like a good place to wrap things up. I mean, like for now, I mean, I, and maybe that is a topic for another uh, entire a topic all its own, because I do believe that distribution of accountability is really like one of those things where it's, it's kind of hiding behind every disaster you know, yeah. just like lawyers, just like insurers, like it's hiding behind every, every sort of depravity. You have this, 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 this kind of this function in which, in which once it triggers, nobody's responsible. That's uh that's amazing that we got there from drugs and cigarettes and booze. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we can do for Incredible. next time. Power, accountability. Yeah, that's that's see so it worked out. I was like, let's just let's just talk yeah. and see where it goes. I think I can get one it ain't about the uh the destination, it's about the journey, gentlemen. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us for another episode of Tonic Discussions. Until next time. Until next time. Later. <laughs>